Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. Why don't we position ourselves and really wrap our minds around the idea that what if instead of working to just address the problem, what if we work to eradicate the problem? How would we think differently? Welcome back to episode 28 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Shakura Adamofanian. Shakura serves as the executive director of Reading Partners DC. She was born and raised in DC and has dedicated her life to working in high poverty and under-resourced communities in the fields of education, policy, community organizing, public engagement, training, and program development. In this episode, we talk about the pivoting that Reading Partners had to do during the pandemic and not only what it has meant for the organization, but also what it says about the need for funding to be flexible and rooted in the community. Shakura gives some great examples of funders that are deeply committed to doing the work and changing their practices to ensure that they are equitable in more ways than just a mission statement on their website. There is something she says in this episode that I can't stop thinking about. She talks about how when it comes to human work, nonprofit work in so many ways, we all feel like we're experts. We wouldn't as friends, investors, or neighbors start to give our opinion or advice out to a doctor about how they could have performed that neurosurgery differently. Not if we didn't know more than them or if we hadn't been trained in how to do that surgery. But for some reason, when it comes to the human work involved in nonprofit, everyone feels like they know best. This lack of acknowledgement and respect for those closest to the work has massive implications. We talk about some of those today. And lucky for you, Shakura is all about solutions. So we talk about tons of those in this episode too. So let's dive in and get into this rich conversation now. Welcome, everyone. I am so thrilled and honored to be here today with Shakura Adamofanian. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Sure. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's just start with the basics of your history in the nonprofit sector. What brings you to this moment in time and what makes you so passionate about the work that you're doing? Love that question. I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. I am a proud graduate of D.C. public schools. And I I say that because a lot of my experience in schools and a lot of opportunities that I got really stemmed from the opportunities that I received as a young person in school. My parents came to D.C. in the early 80s from Nigeria with the thought that they'd only be here for a few years to finish or start college, rather, and then go back. But some moons later (laughs) and four kids, they have made D.C. home and really have set down roots and have connected the 
importance of community that was so much a part of the culture in Nigeria and have done so with DC and have put that in my siblings and that very much have been rooted in the importance of community and being a part of the community and making sure you're doing your part to lift everyone. I started my career as a teacher, taught in Prince George's County, which is a suburb about 15 or so minutes outside of the city, where I actually learned more about what was actually happening during the time I was growing up as a teacher there than I've ever understood. And that was because my work in Prince George's County forced me to really sit down and reflect on what are the unique experiences that I had that shaped the direction of my life. And I always tell people to be clear, there's nothing unique and super special about me. I have many young people who were friends of mine at the time who were probably a bit more talented and the difference between myself and them are just access to opportunity. And all of that realization, that reflection has shaped my work moving forward. So I've been in the education space for over a decade now, doing everything from teaching in the classroom to leading schools, to doing both local and federal policy work, political work, and getting people elected into office who share a passion for ed equity. And then now I'm leading a nonprofit organization, Reading Partners DC, where we pair community volunteers who are interested in giving back. We pair them with young people and provide tutoring for early literacy skills. I love it. And there is this kind of unspoken thread through a lot of my episodes of folks in the education sector. It's where I started my career in at citizen schools in Boston. And so have a lot of passion for the work that you're doing and appreciation for the work that you're doing. I also can imagine, given the model that I once knew of reading partners and how much of this pandemic has shaken up all the ways in which we've operated and worked, that the last two years have probably been pretty hard. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that has been like, what it's been like to lead through that crisis? Sure. It is so surreal to hear you say two years, because I think very much in this pandemic, it's really just been a day-to-day thing. And so just now, (laughs) you say two years, wow, it has been two years. The pandemic, of course, globally has been devastating and many folks have dealt with personal challenges and losing of loved ones. But on the other side of it, it has presented an opportunity to really expedite production of resources that we had been working on for quite some time that we wanted to introduce into the space. And what I tell folks and my school leader friends and other colleagues in the space is that before the pandemic, we had all the excuses in the world as to why we couldn't do things differently, why it was probably a little bit more safe to take our time and really analyze and process whether or not new interventions would be the best thing. But when the pandemic hit, oh boy, did we throw everything we could at this problem, if you will, this moment. And that was the same for us. And so we had been in the works for quite some time developing a virtual option to extend our reach. And we we rolled it out. (laughs) And so we launched our virtual tutoring platform and it has been incredibly successful in one, extending our reach and working with young people who we wouldn't typically touch. And it's also forced us to think a lot more about the other components of our program that really makes it special, thinking more deeply about our family engagement work, everything from incorporating virtual home visits to doing caregiver workshops where we actually teach parents and caregivers how to extend literacy practice in the home by using what's around them. We found some great success there. 
we have implemented our virtual library at the time where students couldn't go to the library to pick up reading materials. We were able to partner with an organization that provided not just access to thousands of titles, but an option where they can have students could have books read to them. And so we thought that was important. Again, it doesn't have the special magic of having an in-person opportunity to have someone read a book to you or you read a book to a person, but it did provide, it covered the gap, if you will, for that time and for young people who may not have had access to that. In addition to that, we also piloted our small group tutoring, which I'm very excited about and we're piloting here in D.C., Our special sauce, what we stand on, what we know works is our one-to-one model. But we also know that children need additional support. And as a teacher, we know that one of the best ways for kids to learn is to have a great model and a peer. And so what are the opportunities that we have to have kids work together on skills? They both need help in and model for each other best practices and learn together. That was also born out of this time. And so reading partners, as it was traditionally known as just this one-to-one tutoring, evidence-based tutoring program, has since evolved into what we we call our suite of offerings, Reading Partners Beyond. And that's what we were able to do. And we've learned a lot, but we are so excited to be back in school buildings, be back in person with young people. But we are also navigating COVID and all of the challenges that presents being in the schoolhouse. Mm -hmm. Wow. There are so many directions I want to go from that intro, but maybe I'll just ask quickly. I'm curious, you know, one of the pieces of reading partners obviously is this really robust volunteer management that I'm sure has a lot of implications from a funding perspective, from a programmatic perspective. What has that been like to manage since the beginning of the pandemic and where have there been some sort of opportunities and challenges? One of the things I appreciate for the work that we do in nonprofit space and human work is what I like to call it, is that when there is a crisis, people typically rise to the call and find some way to get involved to support when they're feeling helpless or hopeless. And so uh, that has been something to benefit us. And we did not skip a beat. In fact, (laughs) at one point we had more volunteers than we had kids to work with, which is a great problem to have. That was exciting for last year when kids were all at home. This year, again, being back in person, folks are really weighing the costs. And honestly, it's when you have people in a concentrated space, you have more outbreaks and and things like that. And so we also think critically about our, our young learners. We want to make sure that they are in the healthiest situation possible. So we weigh that. But we continue to find that there are people who are raising their hands, rolling up their sleeves, wanting to dig in, wanting to support, because there is something about as we seeing more and more articles about the need and how many students are behind and what's actually happening to our most marginalized students, students who are in in need. This is really inspiring folks to want to engage and get involved. And so we continue to mobilize a strong volunteer base, but the need is indeed great. And I think we're going to be in this in terms of the aftermath of COVID and the impact on unfinished learning. We're going to be in this for a while. I'm hoping, and as we talk to our volunteers and as we talk to folks who who keep asking the question, how can we get involved? How can we support? Is just really understand that this is a multi-year issue and sustaining the interest and commitment is going to be so critical to getting kids where they need to be. And for those who are behind already, getting them further ahead. 
I really appreciate the lens into all of the different sort of forms of iteration that the organization has needed to take and the flexibility and the pivoting. I think where other organizations perhaps were paralyzed for longer in terms of how do they show up in this new model or new space, you guys really flew into action, which I think is a real testament to the leadership of the organization. And it sounds like also being in development that it was like, all right, now's the time. But I'm curious from a funding perspective, did you have big funders unrestrict gifts? Did you find that the movement of money was more fluid during that time? Or was that a challenge to navigate as there was this urgent need to shift programming? Yep. So I would say for the funders that we work with, definitely um, at the height of the pandemic, definitely more flexibility, more unrestricted gifts, (laughs) those things did occur. But as we moved dealing with what was happening in the moment and really talking about recovery, some of the previous attitudes around funding and, and providing funding started, began to return into the space. Everyone, again, wanted to make sure that the return on investment is strong. I also think what worked a tad against us this time is that when we think about, in at least in the education space, some of the bigger solutions to critical problems, and we think about some of the successes and many of the challenges, I think for this particular crisis, funders have approached, we love your idea, but we want to make sure this is evidence-based and this is right, or this the metrics are right, and that you do what you say you're going to do because of the experience of the past. So I'm thinking a lot about the SIG grants when we started talking about how to lift schools who were underperforming, some of the grants that were put out there to help states think about getting all the resources to students who are attending failing schools. I think about race to the top, all of those things. And so like the COVID recovery work or the dealing with unfinished learning, You had the federal government give out a bunch of money. The philanthropists responded as well to support that. But you had a lot lot more metrics this time. You had a lot more guardrails that didn't exist when I remember (laughs) working in the um, space with some of those other pieces. And so going back to what I said earlier, when you're doing human work, there is a level of flexibility that I believe all organizations should have. You should absolutely do what you say you're going to do or why do you exist? A thousand percent agree. But there is a level of flexibility um, that is needed to really meet the need of the moment. And um, some funders do are doing a great job at that. And some still are trying to balance that with also being able to speak to their impact in the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's such an important point around, I remember given my sort of history in the education space and the nonprofit space, just how long sometimes it took to learn that something was going to work or wasn't going to work and the long-term costs for short-term metrics. And I remember the things I would have to report on in citizen schools and sometimes feeling like, is this the right metric? Is this actually the metric that's going to move the needle or does this look good on the annual report? And I feel like I can only imagine being back in doing this work in the city that you grew up in, in a place where you are deeply connected on that human level in so many different ways. How can education organizations, it's mind boggling to me. I remember, I feel like I learned this in college or someone said this in college, that education is the most universally supported 
social issue of our time, and yet the one that progresses the most slowly forward. And that to me is like mind boggling. If you think about the funding going into the space in general, and the universal support for education reform, not that everyone sees reform in the same way, of course, but that it's like this bipartisan issue. And then the progress is slow. And so where is this space for innovation and adaptation and allowing community and local leadership? And then the space to figure out, does that get us the results or like actually help us shoot way above that metric? And then at that cost or in that type of model, there's also going to be some failures, some things where we don't hit that mark. And what does that teach us? And how do we learn from that so that we can finally say, that's actually not the model. That's actually not the way. And what's possible when we have that kind of open conversation? So many thoughts come up. You're a thousand percent right. And I think one answer that I've been playing with in terms of why is it that an issue that everyone agrees on that is important. We have invested a ton of money for DC, just for folks to wrap their mind around it. DC is a system of about 90,000 kids and we spend a little over a billion dollars a year for 90,000 kids. That's a lot of money, right? Why? And we've been doing this for quite some time. Why aren't the results better? My most cynical answer, but honestly informs how I lead in this space and how I think about our work is that There are whole industries that have been created and have sustained and thrived on the fact that these gaps exist. And when you think about nonprofit work, while I think it's critical, and this is why I'm going to spend my time, my work time and for my life in this space and and, and really tackling social issues, this industry exists because the gaps exist. And that's not to say that my colleagues in this space are not doing everything that they possibly can to solve problems, but the system is bigger than us. And there are people who've been benefiting from this far long, right? For quite some time. So that's my most cynical thought. But the way that that informs how I work and the conversations I have with my team is that one, why don't we position ourselves and really wrap our minds around the idea that What if we were, instead of working to just address the problem, what if we work to eradicate the problem? How would we think differently? How would we choose the risks that we want to take or the innovation or the pilots that we want to do? How would we choose that differently? What types, how would that shift the conversations we have when we're looking at our data and we're pushing one another? We would have radically different conversations and we are having radically different conversations at my organization. We are really asking the question, If this is a problem, if early literacy and the fact that there are students who, for whatever reason, are not where they need to be, what if we came and attacked the problem as if we're trying to work ourselves out of a job? Immediately, that frame switches the conversations. We are not talking about how to sustain. We are not talking about how to celebrate marginal wins. But what we are talking about, and the success is not how many students we get to work with, but the success becomes how many do we get to exit and we get to return back to the schoolhouse and say, this child is at or above grade level, go forth and put whatever else you got to put into them so they can go and live the lives that they want to. Radically different conversations. So that's one side of it. I forgot the other part because that was the part I was holding on to. I'm curious, I'm thinking as you're saying these things, the different types of funding streams that support education work. And 
the different story and narrative that you're telling and the types of funders that aligns with and perhaps even the internal work that people need to do to ask themselves those fundamental questions. What does it look like for us to fund work that actually solves this problem. Yeah, I was thinking, I was talking to someone recently about their donor advised fund and how much money is just sitting in their donor advised fund and they can't decide what to give it to, or they don't feel activated around a certain issue area or haven't found the right organization. And we know how much trapped in donor advised funds across the country. We know how much money gets trapped in corporate matching programs, you know, six to 10 billion a year is never claimed in corporate matching programs. So how would things change? How could giving or philanthropy or investment change if we started with the questions that you're pushing us to ask? Sure. So this, my view on this has been an evolution and it really started with me as a leader leading in my hometown and leading in a city where my daughter is going to enter the education system in about a, a year now. I got a year to fix it, which is crazy. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but the, the, the mom in me is like, I have a year to make this extremely perfect for this perfect being that I got shares a little bit of my face. But that's where that process comes from. I started off as a teacher. So my former students now have kids who are in the system. And for some of my students, they went on, they were very successful. I played a small role and it was my first year. Those four babies, we both benefited from <laughs> each other. I, don't, I, I can't take part in their successes, but the rest of them, I, I can claim a little bit. But they now have children in the system and the same problems exist. The same pitfalls exist. The same, like it all is still here. And so... If we've been trying to tackle these issues, if it's poverty, if it's climate you know, change or whatever the big social issues are, and we've been trying to tackle this for generations, decades or whatever, and year after year, it's the same problem. We need to switch. And what opportunity we have is one actual introspection around what role have we played? We being nonprofits, philanthropists government, community, what roles have we played to keep the problem going intentionally and unintentionally? Let's have some real conversation. The second outcome that could come from really switching the lens would be what is actually needed today and how are we serving the people whom we've developed all these things for? And is it actually what they need? Is it what they want? There's an organization, I can't remember their name, but they do fantastic work. And the idea of it is to support families and lifting the entire family up. And what the org the nonprofit does is they make mini grants to the families. And so in the grants, all you have to do is tell them what your goals are. They don't question your goals. They don't give you a few categories in which they only give you the grant. All they offer you is the resource to live out the vision that you set for yourself. And they just check in with you on your progress to the vision. That's it. And that organization has seen tremendous success and continued participation in the program because what they did was honor the expertise and experience of those most impacted by all the issues and created space for them to do what they knew how to do, but just weren't resourced to do. And that was it. And so, of course, as a, you know, a nonprofit leader, I want to go, yeah, 
<laughs> let's do that. <laughs> let's, do, let's do more of more of that, right? Because like that type of trust, that type of space to really allow leaders to lean into their expertise and experience, I think will help us get to closing some of these gaps a lot faster. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in metrics. I believe in measuring what we're doing because the other side to that, if you go too far in that direction, you have a bunch of resources that are given to organizations that are not quite doing what they said that they would do and the people are not benefiting. That is not okay. But there has to be some sort of middle ground that creates the space to be flexible, to be innovative, to actually address these issues. And again, that question of asking, like, how would we approach the work if we were actually trying to work ourselves out of a job? I think it would yield all those things. And I think that question you asked around how have we involuntarily or consciously continued to perpetuate this problem? We've had a number of conversations on what the fundraising about white supremacy culture and its impact on organizations and at sort of macro level, micro levels. I think one of the things that is clear about the funding structure, especially the foundation funding structure, but really actually that's not true. I I think it can go across the board is like, how do we get out of this like paternalistic nature of funding? The reality is, you know, best what needs to happen and beyond just the trust on an individual level, although I think that work needs to be done and the anti-racist training and the white supremacy training to be aware of our unconscious biases is critical too. But I also think there's just this, in the whole way that funding is given to nonprofits, this whole kind of deprofessionalization of the nonprofit sector where we need to be babysat to do our work. And if that could radically shift, if we could start watching nonprofits lead the sector, lead philanthropy instead of the funders, I think that's how, for me, when I think about what's it going to take to eradicate these problems, it feels like that shift is a critical part of it. First Tee of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash whatthefundraising or click the link in the show notes. And I feel like First is respecting the expertise in the space. I think when you talk about human problems, everybody feels like they have a good idea on how to solve it. But if you go into the L&D space around, I don't know, self-driving cars, I don't see a lot of venture capitalists saying, yep, I know exactly the way this industry should work, the technology here. No, what you hear them say is, okay, that sounds really cool. So if I give you this, how much am I going to get back? You know, that type of, I just support a really strong idea. But I think when you do human work 
And everybody feels like they have some level of expertise around how to do human work. But then there's also rooted in that the stories that we tell and the narratives that make us feel comfortable around talking about how we feel good about what we're doing. So it feels good to say, oh, there are some children who are under-resourced or without means. They're so poverty-stricken. And we were able, through our fundraising efforts, or we were able with our resources to provide for them. That feels real good, right? That's something that you can go home at night, pat yourself on the back, lay your head on the pillow and move forward. But one, that's actually not the true story. And I'm now talking about this from personal experience. I remember in DC, it's been such a boom, lots of people moving here. And I remember having a conversation with a gentleman who had just gotten to the city and moved into the neighborhood that I grew up in. And he said something to me that was so striking. He was like, I don't understand why people who are from here complain about new people moving in and all the changes coming. After all, aren't they excited that these amenities are being brought to the community? We were the one who served as catalyst for that. Not recognizing that I remember the many nights that my dad and my neighbors came together to not only complain about the lack of amenities or the lack of safety in a particular community, but also the frustration and the pain that they felt when they went to advocate for themselves. And when they went to enact a plan that met the needs of the community, they weren't listened to. They weren't heard. They were ignored. They were invisible. So. In many ways, I, I see a parallel with that. And, and I tell my team all the time, our board and our funders, I want us to be clear. We are not here, like we are not the saviors in this space. We have the great privilege to partner with communities who have a plan in motion to provide a resource to support them to reach the vision that they have. On a school level, we are a part of a plan that a school leader developed in support of their young people. That's already in action. And we just fit into that. That's a radically different way. And it, it doesn't lend itself to a lot of ooey gooey feelings. It's, oh, it's just, it's, I'm working. I'm bringing something to the table. <laughs> I don't get to claim the good of all of this. But it's not ours to claim. It is that communities to own and, and, and use to push forward, to, to push the community forward. So it's less self-centered, but it makes it harder to fundraise with folks out there. Everybody wants a feel-good story. Very different. Gosh, I'm having this weird experience right now because the second story that you told, the way you talked to your board and staff, for me, is so much more exciting. And so I'm trying, I'm like really trying to tap into what you're saying, which is that like funders and that claiming piece. No one has said that word on any episode before. And I think there's something really important about this ownership and claiming of result that there needs to be more transparency around. And we have this softer language of talking about this where we're like, we we need to show our funders their impact. Like we want to show our funders their impact. And going back to what you were saying before about, it's not about how many students we work with, but how many students have we exited of the program and just all of these pieces that you're saying, I just think are so important for us to be honest about how we have used language and tools in the past that have caused harm, what it looks like to change the way we show up. And then to be honest about why the heck we're even here. Is this sector here so we feel good? 
Yeah. And there is actually an order of operation, if you will, in order to, I think, arrive at different results. It does start with the personal work, as you mentioned. And I want to be clear, there's both work that white folk have to do in this space and there's work that folk of color have to do in this space because unfortunately we're all impacted by the system of racism and oppression. Everybody has a negative impact, whether you recognize it or not. And there's individual work that has to be done, period. Once you do that, and then once you ask the question, well, what will it take to solve the problem and really flipping it on the head, I think you then begin to arrive at some of those other questions or aha moments that pop up. And I would say funders are not excluded from going through that process either. Now, I want to be clear that there's some organizations that are really doing the work and living it out. I will shout out City Bridge Foundation in D.C. They are really doing the work so much so that they've come up with these are folks who have access to tremendous amount of resources and they want to really support and solve the problems around education in the city. But they have really done the work to think about how they're showing up in this space. What's their role? What's the right type of role? And how are they lifting the community and the plans that they have for themselves? And how are they lifting that and pushing that to the forefront and only leveraging their what they have to support those plans? And I think that, that that's a powerful example of a funder who's doing the work and continuously doing the work to make sure that they're not getting in the way of progress or claiming progress, but actually aiding the community to address the problems that they want to address in the way that they see fit. Love that. I want to learn more about their work. And I'd be curious to learn the internal work that had to happen in order for them to show up that way and the different things that they put in place and stuff like that. Because I think that we're hearing a lot of high level conversation in the foundation space about some of these issues. But then like you and I have talked about before, this reporting and metrics look the same as they did before. And so there seems to be this disconnect between the cognitive recognition of the need to evolve and Mm -hmm. the ability or knowing of the organization around how to evolve. I'm seeing something similar around community-centric fundraising principles. There's a lot of conversation around that from a theoretical perspective and a what's wrong and broken in the system perspective, and not a lot of tangible examples of here's really effective community-centric fundraising. And so folks are like, how do I cross this bridge? I want to do that in my organization too. I feel so far away from that. And maybe there are foundations listening to this too, who are like, I want to show up as that type of funder. And I like, what is the process of getting from A to Z? Yeah. Again, I do think it's a commitment to the organization is a commitment to developing their people because your people, your greatest asset will build how you do the things. So investing in your people to actually do that deep reflection, to explore their own experiences and how it shapes how they see the world around them and their role and their position in the world. I think that's the beginning of it. And from there, I think will spark how to do things differently. But if you're not even tackling that and you're just giving lip service, if you will, to moments in time where unfortunately folks in marginalized communities suffer the repercussions of systemic oppression and racism, and you're every now and again putting out a statement and standing in solidarity and that's the extent of the work, then we're going to keep having this conversation, Mallory. I'll be back here in about another 10 years or so talking about the same thing. 
But if we actually make strategic investments into the development of the people who create the systems to begin with, maybe then we'll see something different. So I would encourage those organizations to really invest in that and really put that as a critical part of the work. It should be just as important as meeting deadlines or anything else. They engage in that work and to demonstrate growth. Yeah, I agree with everything that you just said. And I keep kind of looping on the way you talk about nonprofit work, this human work. I feel like oftentimes fundraisers remove or try to remove their humanness from the equation because it feels so vulnerable or emotional. And that some of the biggest challenges that I see fundraisers face is not because they don't have the fundraising plan, but because they're really deeply afraid of rejection and it's holding them back from taking the action that they need to take to do the plan. And so it's almost like they, in some ways, like I hear you and I agree with you in the sense that, and I think that is actually such an important point that I haven't heard anyone talk about in that way. The the fact that we all feel like we're experts in the nature of human work in a way that actually really devalues true expertise in spaces. I think that's a critically important point. And I'm just curious about from your experience, how has fundraising felt in terms of showing up as your full human self? And how does that relate to this equation for you? Yeah. So this is probably the first role where fundraising metrics like are, were really a part of the job. In, the, in all my previous roles, I did it indirectly or I've done it in my private life around political fundraising and things like that. But what my experience has been just in, in total with fundraising, I do think that there is an extra level of, I mean, fundraising is hard. Asking people to give of their resources in a very significant way and to really invest in an idea or a set of principles that you and your organization have around addressing a problem. It's still hard work. You're asking people for their money to do the things that, again, many of them think that they know how to do better than you because they're human too. But I think as a Black woman in the space, there are quiet challenges that I deal with, some of which is just by virtue of who I'm dealing with and whatever bias they come into the space with, whether conscious or unconscious that I deal with. So there are some experiences that I've had where I've watched a particular funder deal with my predecessor who happened to be white and same circumstances. There are a lot less questions that are offered or questions around strategy that are offered to them than there are for me. And there's a lot more justification. Well, I just don't understand and I need to see those type of things. and. All of it is under the umbrella of we just want to make sure that you all are doing what you're saying that you're doing. And this is just to make sure that we're supporting you in the ways that you want to support. And that's one way. I also think there are, again, as an outcome of structural racism and oppression, there's internal work that I've had to do with myself around value and worth in the space. And then on top of that, my experiences growing up as a working class, low income, whatever the descriptor is for folks like my parents, there are opportunities that I didn't have or experiences that I didn't have that I don't have to draw on to build connection. And so internal work to say, it doesn't make me less valuable. It doesn't mean I'm less worthy of being in the space. And also because I didn't go to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or all those places, those are great schools. I didn't go there. It doesn't mean that I am less educated or less talented. And so there's the weight of doing that work to show up in the space, to lead in the way that you need to lead. That also isn't factored 
into it. The mulling over of an email and making sure the language is right and going over and over in your head about particular interactions and how you missed a cultural reference because you just didn't have any exposure. So those things are different. It's also as a leader of color, if you happen to have a development person who is a person who's white, the deference that's given to that person in the space and the sort of turning to them to answer strategy questions, the assumptions that person is leading and not you. All of those things have come into place in my personal experience. It's heavy and the weight of that, the emotional labor is so much. And so why wouldn't there be a tremendous amount of burnout? Why wouldn't there be folks who may shy away from that seat? It's heavy. And so I would say that's the description of the challenging side of it. But the other side of it, and something I've learned since I was a little girl, podcast people can't see me, but I am a tall, heavily melanated, very beautiful, dark-skinned woman who I've been this way my whole life. And so these are negotiations I've had to make since I was a kid. And one of the, the things that developed outside out of that is I'm different anyway, so I'm just going to be me in this space. And so there's the other side to that where I have found a good bit of success just by being honest and being who I am. And so when I talk to other leaders of color and we talk about the different negotiations and things like that that we have to do, just the encouragement of you might as well be who you are because you are who you are. And that doesn't take away from your abilities or anything like that. I do this work because I am from the city. I do this work on behalf of my daughter, my nieces, my nephews, my cousins, my, my current and former students and their children. I do this work for children who look like me and come from the same background. That's why I'm in this seat. And I so happen to have all the other things that make me qualified for this. And that's what I start with. And so I found peace in that. And I'm learning to rest in that and be okay with my leadership looking different than others might be in a space. So thank you for sharing all of that. Okay. What question am I not asking you that I should be asking you? How can we fix the thing? How can we fix this dynamic? Okay, give it to me. I think, and when I'm wearing my community organizing hat, right? One of my mentors in the space, the biggest lesson he taught me, you know how you get people interested in fixing a problem. And I was like, okay, how? He's like getting them to share stories. The sharing of stories actually increases everyone's self-interest around a problem because you you actually begin to have a face and a name and an experience. You can associate that with whatever the problem is. And so in many ways, I'd love to see the conversation you and I are having. I'd love to see a conversation pulled together with executive directors of nonprofits or leaders of nonprofits, major funders in the space to actually talk about what's happening here. Let's just share stories about what's happening here. What are you experiencing? What are you experiencing? What do you need? And that type of exchange. I just wonder what would come out of it. And I wonder if the next steps around how to actually fix this and move forward, I wonder if that would emerge just by doing a sharing of stories and experiences. I love that. And I love that you're talking about it through the frame of wonder and curiosity and not how would we measure this conversation and its impact and what would its six months deliverables mean? But what does it look like for us to get together and have some more open dialogue around some of these critical issues with the right folks in this space to be able to contribute their own stories and their own experiences? I love that. There was something that you said that made me want to ask you one other question. 
which is we have a mutual appreciation for Lee, Leadership for Educational Equity. And one of the things that was moving to me about meeting with folks from that organization and doing those interviews on the podcast was actually the way that they talked about self-interest and the important role that plays in bringing people into a cause. And you just used that word again. And I think it's this really important point because I think in the nonprofit sector, we often fall on the side of martyrdom where even the term self-interest feels cringy to people. They're like, oh no, Mallory, don't talk about self-interest. We're just here to help. (laughs) And it goes back to that whole other narrative around what feels good to us conversation and why are we here and what are we doing and how often are we actually taking actions because it just feels good to us as opposed to really solving these problems. And this piece around self-interest I think is so important is like, it's okay for there to be self-interest when we're organizing, that it's actually a necessity, that it's actually a powerful force and that self-interest is not equal to exploitation and harm. And I'm just curious, like your thoughts about that. I think it's important. So long as self-interest and the focus of it is not just on the organization, but rather when we take self-interest into consideration, I think that it does denote a certain level of respect for the individual. Like when you sit back and say, before I come to you to pitch a thing, let me understand who you are, what you value, what is important to you? Who are the folks around you that support you? Let me understand that first before I come to you and talk about why I think the thing that I'm interested in, the thing I care about has some sort of connection to the thing you're interested in and you care about. That's when I'm talking about self-interest in that way. That's how I'm seeing it. I do think that we do have to be careful not to move into the manipulation and space or or things like that. That's not going to help us. But I think exploring self-interest mutually allows us to have uh, deeper and more meaningful conversations. And that denotes respect for all parties that are involved. So that's how I see it and how I see that playing out. Yeah, I love that. Inside my course, I talk about that a lot around like, how are you, first of all, identifying alignment, really understanding that person or that entity or that organization is aligned around a mutual goal, a mutual impact, solving the problem that you both want to see solved. And then being honest and transparent about the mutual impact in a way that upholds the dignity of everyone at the table and is honest about the relationship, right? That I'm bringing this to you because I think there's a real mutual benefit here. And so, yes, of course I have an interest in it. And of course you have an interest in it. And does it work? Do you see the alignment that I see? And all of those things. I think it's just part of this bigger conversation, which is what you're saying. And again, it's really, and I speak about all of this from the context of nonprofit work, human work, or or what have you. It's not just the organization It's not just the funder or the individual who's giving that it's important to understand self-interest, but the folk that we're working with too. And that should be communicated at every step of the way. I think that formula yields stronger results that preserves the dignity of all folks who are engaging in this process. And I think that part is also important and would maybe, and at least for me, as I think about our work, it takes away the cringiness of the word when it's no, 
all parties who are involved, <laughs> there's an understanding of their self-interest in this. And there's a recognition that that self-interest is just as important. And what we're doing here is trying to figure out how do we find the balance between all of it to do the things that we want to do and to change the things that we want to change. That's important. But I think what happens in the nonprofit space is that we absolutely, most of the time, ignore the self-interest of the people we're trying to do the things for, don't even inquire about it, not even a bit of curiosity there. or and. We, as nonprofit folk, we don't talk about our own because of the whole martyrdom piece and we don't want to look like we're so greedy, right? Or we hyper-focus on the self-interest of the foundation or the the individual donor. And like, that's what's actually happening. And again, that contributes to a lot of where we are today. But the question is, what would it look like if we considered everyone's self-interest? How would that shift conversations around what it is we're doing how your resources would help us attack the broader vision. How would it even shape the vision of what we think the problem is by just really focusing on the conversations and getting to know people? Maybe the problem is we understand it, we being nonprofit spaces and funders, then if we would just spend time thinking about people who would actually benefit from the good, I'm using, you all podcast, I'm using my fingers with the air quotes. (laughs) What would we, how might that, shift the vision or whatever the the call to action is, if we would hear from the people who we're actually trying to work on behalf of. Mm. And all of it goes back to an underlying belief that there is a path forward that is not a zero-sum game. And that is just such a critical, I think, foundational belief to adopt, to be able to do work that's more inclusive. And I'm glad you said that part because I think you're right. And I think I often talk about the funding relationship in the relationship of the organization and the funder, a two-way relationship. And so I think that's a really important point that the only way to have that level of transparency is that, and that conversation around mutual benefit is full, everyone at the table having that conversation together. And, And our organization is really taking that to heart and really doing that work. Like we want to make sure that whatever we bring to market, whatever product, if you will, that it is needed and informed by the folk who we are doing this in partnership with. Our type of, our way, our approach to partnering with communities is actually what they need. Again, for the plan that they already have in action for Mm -hmm. themselves. So on a tactical level, would that look like sometimes bringing principles to meetings with funders if you're talking about getting funding for programs that go into their schools? Absolutely. It would mean school officials, school leaders be represented within any sort of board or be a part of our strategic planning process or coming to funder meetings or having just as much input on things as a funder would have, right? So to do that. and. That also is a little bit of releasing the reins a bit too, but not just school leaders for us too, parents as well, kids even. Ultimately, the children are the end user or customer or whatever, you know, whatever term you want to use, but they're the, the recipient of the thing. Do kids like what we're doing? Is it actually helping them? And they can tell you they're experts in themselves. Really thinking about all the stakeholders, how are we creating opportunities for them to meaningfully engage and influence what we're doing? And we are really, at Reading Parties, we're really thinking critically about that. I love that. And I, in addition to releasing the reins, it sounds just doing less gatekeeping from a funding perspective too. Yeah, and that's important. 
And that's only possible if you're asking the question that you're challenging us all to ask, which is how do we eradicate this problem? How do we stop needing to exist? And when we answer that question, then the gatekeeping is obvious. So I, it all goes back to the foundation you've built this whole conversation on. I am, I could talk to you forever. I am so grateful for your time today and for this conversation. So at the end, I invite folks to highlight a nonprofit that they love and care about. If you want to share where folks can go and learn more and then about you too, how they can follow along, support your work. Sure. Again, I absolutely adore Reading Partners. You can find more information about us at www.readingpartners.org. If you live in Washington, D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, please check out the Washington, D.C. chapter. And at the top of the webpage, you'll be able to choose a location. Come learn a little bit about what we're doing. Come get your hands involved in this work. We have young people who are ready to grow and we have opportunities to support them. And we want you to be a part of that work. As for me, on my social media. I'm not there yet. I'm working on that, but <laughs> I'm always around reading partners. So you'll always see me there, but don't hesitate to reach out. I can give you my email address at the end of this. If folks, I really do like talking to folks and feel free to connect with me there as well. Perfect. We can put it in the show notes so folks can find you. Perfect. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Wow. I am so grateful to Shakura for giving us this lens into her work and into reading partners in such an important way. There are three really important points that she makes in this episode that I hope we're all walking away with. Number one is that individual work starts with introspection for everyone. Introspection is the first step towards change, and this applies to all nonprofits and philanthropists, government, communities. Let's have a real conversation about what roles we've played to keep problems going intentionally and unintentionally. That's the only way for us to actually move forward. The second thing I'm thinking about is investing in your people. She talks about how a team is made up of people and their personal stories. Explore your team's experiences and how they shape the way they see the world. Reflect on how these personal backgrounds affect your team's role in the organization and their position in the world. There is such a wealth of knowledge and resources that often goes untapped and unrecognized in organizations. The third thing I'm thinking about is how she talks about sharing stories as a really key component to understanding the complexities of all of our experiences, people's behavior, and how we can work together to find solutions. Okay, there were so many pieces in this episode that I loved and I could go on and on, but for all the other takeaways and some of my favorite quotes, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast. You'll find more information there about reading partners and Shakur's incredible work and how to connect with her. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.
Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.